Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Lauren Simonetti. I'm Brian Kilmeade. I'm Kat Timpf, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. I'm Dave Anthony. We're just six days away from the next Republican contest in New Hampshire. Can former President Trump win big there like in Iowa or could Nikki Haley pull off an upset? And the challenge for Haley is going to be how does she get together enough voters, particularly independents, to pick up ballots who want to defeat Donald Trump to get to the point where she can be competitive with him. I'm Grinnell Scott. Kids love playing football, imagining themselves making the game-saving tackle that delivers a victory. Now the state of California is close to putting an age limit on a child's tackle football dream. We consider football America's passion. And it would be devastating on so many fronts. And I'm Tammy Bruce. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. He didn't have a lot of time to savor his historic win in Iowa. So it's now off to New Hampshire, a great place. We won it last time and uh, we won it both times. And uh, we love it. The people are great. That was after former President Trump got a record 51 percent winning the Republican Iowa caucuses. We're a nation in decline. We are going to turn it around so fast. But he still has two challengers. Ron DeSantis finished second in Iowa, then went to South Carolina, which has the third contest next month. I'm the only one running for president who has taken on and defeated the left time and time and time again. The Florida governor then went to New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley was already there after finishing third in Iowa and told Fox. You can look at the polls in New Hampshire. We're a stone's throw away from from Donald Trump. And so we're going to continue to work really hard. And all three candidates are now in New Hampshire, six days before the primary there, which is open to more than just Republican voters. She has been able to cobble together a coalition of uh, independent voters who can pick up the ballot and uh, vote on Tuesday. Chris Ryan hosts New Hampshire Today, weekday mornings on our Fox radio affiliate WGIR 610 AM. She has also been able to get some of the more moderate Republicans and some conservatives as well. And she is, you know, we haven't seen any polling without Chrissy and Ramaswamy, of course, dropped out of the race after the caucus on Monday. But, you know, my estimates and other folks who have it about 10, 15 percent, the lead for Trump. So he still has a healthy lead here in the Granite State. But um, this if there's going to be a place where it's competitive, this is the state because you can have independents who are Democratic leading, Republican leaning or just straight up independent vote in this contest. And it gives you more of a feel as to you know how candidates are going to play in the general election as opposed to you know a caucus or a, a state that's a closed primary where things tend to shift more toward the fringe on the left or the right, depending on if it's a Democratic or Republican primary. Eight years ago, New Hampshire was a key player for former President Trump because he lost to 
Ted Cruz in Iowa. He went to New Hampshire, and he did very well. He got more than double the support of the second-place finisher, John Kasich, and that propelled him toward the nomination. Is he expected to draw the same kind of crowds? So his campaign has been very different this time around. He, his events have been infrequent, um, and there have not been – he has not had kind of sustained presence. He's been out in for one day, and then we may not see him again for several weeks. This week is going to be here throughout the course of the week. He has you know events scheduled not at huge venues other than the SNHU Arena, which is the 10,000-seat arena in Manchester. The other venues are all smaller, but um, he does have a ton of support in this state. And back in 2016, he struck a tone with voters as being a populist candidate. He wasn't, you know, an old school Republican. Um, he wanted America first, uh, limited um, military usage, um, and was running, you know, a type of campaign that kind of struck some libertarian tones, um, but also was, you know, very much an outsider and. Folks in the Granite State like that. They like people that are going to take on the establishment and, you know, fight for um, working everyday people. And that populist type of a tone really struck. He is, you know, as popular as he was back then. He hasn't lost any support. And obviously, with being president of the United States, he's probably, you know, gained some support over time. Uh, so this time around, I expect him to be in the mid to upper 40s. And the challenge for Haley is going to be how does she get together enough voters, particularly independents, to pick up ballots who want to defeat Donald Trump to get to the point where she can be competitive with him. How much sway does your governor have? I mean, Chris Nunu is not a Trump fan, and uh, he's certainly on the Nikki Haley train here, and he may have been helpful in getting Chris Christie out of the race to help Haley to to put more support behind her in the bid to take the nomination away from the front runner. I mean, can he help deliver New Hampshire for Haley? Yes, because he is very popular with um, low information, you know, independent voters, people that don't follow politics on a day in day out basis like uh, like I do and other folks do. Not political junkies, they're people that want good government. They've um, you know grown tired of Biden. They've grown tired of Trump. They want to move on to something new, and that's Haley's big pitch: is that look around, there's nobody else coming to save you except for me. And that um, you don't have any other options out there. If you're one of the 70% of Americans that does not want Biden or Trump uh, to have have a face-off against each other again, here I am. And this is your chance to have your say. And that's going to be her pitch, you know, closing things out. She has an ad up um, which says that Biden and Trump are the two least popular politicians in America. Do we want? Do you want them to run against each other again? Here I am uh, to provide an alternative to that. And she, despite the fact that she came in third in Iowa, is saying it's a two-person race. And I talked with uh, Sununu yesterday, and he says basically it's a two-person race because DeSantis doesn't have anywhere else to go. DeSantis is polling uh, in the mid-single digits here in New Hampshire. Uh, he's not doing much better in South Carolina. So despite the fact that he got a ticket out of Iowa, Sununu's argument is that it's a ticket to nowhere. Do you think in six days he could – he used to be more than single digits. He used to have more support than that in New Hampshire. Can he bring some voters back who might be impressed that he did better than expected in Iowa? Believe it or not, a year ago uh, at this time, DeSantis was leading Trump by like 14 percent in the UNH poll. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he, he – had had a place uh, at the top of the conversation and he has you know slipped since then um he goes there doesn't he i mean one of the things that made him 
more successful in Iowa was he went to all the counties and did the retail right. politicking. Do you have to do that in New Hampshire as much as you do in Iowa? So Iowa is, is much bigger. Um, there's more space to to cover. Um, I, I've you know over the years things have kind of changed, and more of a focus is on the populated areas. I mean, uh, last night the, all the candidates started outside of the Manchester Concord Nashua corridor. And that may be the last time they expand outside the Manchester mm. National Concord Quarter, right gotcha. down the middle of the state. Right, because so, northern New Hampshire doesn't have the population, obviously. Correct. Um, it's beautiful up there. And uh, who doesn't want to ski up at Bretton Woods? That's where Nikki Haley was last night. Um, Trump was on the seacoast at Atkinson. And DeSantis started in Claremont, which is on the border of with Vermont. So... Yeah, you you want to make sure that you go into all the different areas. There's more Republican voters up north than than Democrats. The college towns have mostly Democrats as as opposed to Republicans. So the seacoast, like UNH, is over on the seacoast. Uh, Dartmouth is up in the um, up in the Connecticut River Valley. So you, you get your biggest kind of mix of Republican and and Democrats in, and you know independents, working people, kind of in the middle of the state. That's where the media outlets are. Um, so they generally stay in that area. President Biden has been preparing for a rematch. Trump is now promising a full-scale campaign of revenge and retribution, his words. And the president said at a re-election campaign rally earlier this month in Pennsylvania. As we begin this election year, we must be clear, democracy is on the ballot. But Joe Biden is not next week in New Hampshire, where he finished fifth in 2020 only to rebound in South Carolina on his way to the nomination and then the White House. So he got Democrats to move South Carolina's primary first this time around, February 3rd. That did not go over well in New Hampshire, which kept the Democratic primary in place next week, prompting the president to stay away and the Democratic National Committee to ignore the results. There is a campaign for Joe Biden here in the Granite State, a write-in campaign, and we've seen, you know, Biden administration officials, Pete Buttigieg was here last week, Jennifer Granholm uh, was here as well, Jamie Raskin, uh, not a Biden administration official, but basically a surrogate for the campaign, and Maura Healey, the governor of Massachusetts, came up all supporting uh, the Biden administration for the administration officials and touting work that and money that's been spent here, but the others were in support of the write-in campaign, Raskin and uh, also Maura Healey. So there's a campaign for Joe Biden that um, doesn't exist, but exists, in which the Democratic Party sent a letter to the New Hampshire Dems saying to, you know, stop doing this and your, your, your primary is meaningless while the New Hampshire Democrats are trying to support Biden. It's, it's a remarkable dynamic. Um, Dean Phillips has uh, has invested significant money, the congressman from Minnesota, uh, to try to do well in the polls, but he's not going to peak much higher than 20%. Biden should uh, still you know, win pretty handily with the write-in campaign, despite the fact that uh, the National Democratic Party said the primary is meaningless. Um, Biden and his uh, supporters seem to think otherwise. And the delegates, don't, you get no delegates, right? No delegates. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you look at Iowa and New Hampshire anyway, it's, it's more of a you know, it's more just to kind of set the the tone for the the races. The delegates are not that big of a deal. It's more the you know the perception and all the um, you know aura of the primary and caucus as opposed to meaning too much delegate vote. You know, New Hampshire has a better track record than Iowa for Republicans, with a winner there more often going on to be the nominee. Ronald Reagan in 1980 
after George H.W. Bush won in Iowa. In 2008, Mike Huckabee won Iowa, but it was John McCain who won in New Hampshire and became the nominee. Four years later, Rick Santorum's Iowa victory was overshadowed by Mitt Romney's New Hampshire win. And eight years ago, Donald Trump, after losing to Ted Cruz in Iowa, one big in New Hampshire on his way to the White House. Haley got into some trouble um, uh, a week or so ago in Milford, you know, where she said that Iowa starts things, then New Hampshire corrects it, and then we're going to take it down to my sweet state of uh, South Carolina. And of course, DeSantis played that up in in Iowa, and you know, maybe not the brightest thing, you know, to say that, and then spending the next ten days in Iowa campaigning for the caucus. But Nikki Haley was a hundred percent. Right. Iowa is generally uh, corrected by New Hampshire because it has more of a, a general election type of feel with independents being able to, you know, to vote. But, you know, the party, the, the Republican Party, Democratic Party have all lurched uh, well to the to the extremes at this point. And, um, you know, you wonder who are going to be the voters, as you mentioned, in the in the Republican primary and where are those independents going to go? A big thing to watch here for the next a week is, you know, what is Haley's messaging like? Is she going to focus on Trump and try to bring in uh, independents and some Democrats who registers undeclared to try to defeat Donald Trump um, and use that language, with, you know, and talk about things that, um, you know, maybe Republican voters or people that are leaning towards Trump aren't comfortable with? Uh, that's going to be an interesting thing, because if she's going to get across the finish line here, it's going to be independents that push her across the finish line. And as we saw in Iowa, you know, there was a significant amount of her voters that will vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump in the general election. Does she play to those folks or does she, you know, try to um, you know, win voters who are leaning Trump in the margins? Turnout. Is it typically high for the primary? Yeah, it's it's typically high. And that's the um, you know, that's the expectation. That's one of the reasons that New Hampshire always makes the argument for uh, for going first. So, yeah, we expect, um, you know, the, the turnout generally for these is about uh, you know, 60, 65 percent. Chris Ryan, host of New Hampshire Today on WGIR AM and also on 96.7 FM. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. This is Tammy Bruce with your Fox News commentary coming up. It can definitely be a proud moment for parents who have big dreams for their kids. Sitting in the stands at a youth football game and watching their son or daughter in some cases, make a perfect tackle to save a game or stop an important drive. Now imagine if kids under age 12 had that opportunity taken away. 
The State Assembly of California has until the end of January to decide if it will ban tackle football participation for kids under the age of 12. It's an argument that has raged for years, but this is the closest it has come to an up or down vote in California. State Assembly member Kevin McCarty is among the political leaders promoting the change, saying big hits aren't good for little kids. A five, six, seven, eight, eleven-year-old um, should not be experiencing hundreds of sub-concussive hits to the head on an annual basis when there is an alternative. The concern from the opposition goes beyond just the hits themselves. Dr. Stella Lagarda, a California-based neurologist, looks deeper into the concerns of Assemblymember McCarty and the possible cumulative health effect. Repetitive head impacts, regardless of impact severity, laid the foundation for brain injury. So, if a ban is enacted, how would it work? Assembly Bill 734 would ban kids under age 6 from playing tackle football starting in 2025. By 2029, kids younger than 12 would not be allowed to play. A vocal opposition to this California Assembly bill is hoping to stop its progress long before the moment of decision at the end of January. If you'll pardon the football lingo, it's a governmental play they've spent a lot of time designing a defense for. We deeply care about the youth in this state. We also deeply care about parental choice. Ron White is chairman of the board and president of the California Youth Football Alliance. And when you're informing public policy, you should do that through foundational measures, meaning you should really have a clinical eye as to what we're doing collectively as Californians, certainly you as legislators, about unintended consequences and impact when you roll out something that's unprecedented, that hasn't occurred anywhere in our country in the history of this sport. And California would be the first to do this, correct? Correct. There there are pieces of legislation that have been attempted in other states, but in terms of successfully passing this, and, and we don't believe that will be the case, California would be the first. That is correct. Football is ingrained in the the fabric of, of America. Many people have sidestep baseball and called it the national pastime of this country. What would banning tackle football among the youth of California, what would that do to the perception of the sport among the kids out there in that state? Sure. Well, first, I like the baseball analogy of America's pastime. Well, we consider football America's passion. And it would be devastating on so many fronts. Football is the lifeblood for a lot of communities and brings families together. We look at football as more of a vehicle for mentorship, Uh, a a passage for academics, um, giving communities an opportunity to rise out of what may be even more challenging uh, economic uh, endeavors. So football for us is, is primarily a vehicle. And when you're talking about taking away opportunities for kids, in what is already in, in from my perspective, an overregulated state, it is problematic on many fronts. When you look at this, as far as uh, the youth and, and the opportunity opportunities they have, I do want to go back to what you said about uh, being the lifeblood of communities. There is a certain gathering. There is a certain 
some may even argue economic value to small communities who gather, building the community togetherness that would be affected, in your opinion, should this come to fruition in the California Assembly? Well, 100 percent correct. And I, I say that to you as somebody who's logged three and a half decades in this sport and representing a central part of the state, uh, the Bakersfield area, where you have a lot of rural and ag communities in terms of what my experience has been most recently. And now we're talking about uh, at a statewide level, football, unlike any other sport, in, in my humble opinion, brings families together. It is it is not necessarily about a sport. It is about community. And when you talk about the unintended consequence of taking away what we believe to be an absolute outlet for kids in communities of need, it would be devastating. And that's what we would ask legislators to stop and pause for a minute and say, what does it look like in California without youth tackle football? From our perspective, not good. Are injuries an inherent part of the game? Clearly, there are injuries associated with soccer, football, flag football, baseball. But what I'm, I'm here to tell you is we're really proud of the work that we've done. And sometimes this gets lost in the shuffle is in California, and we are alone in this category. We went to work in 2019 and authored the California Youth Football Act. It is the only act of its kind, the only piece of codified legislation in the country with stringent safety measures in place. In fact, we're holding it up uh, proudly for the rest of the country to follow. So hopefully we don't have to continue to be in a conversation about youth tackle football. We're extremely proud of our work, along with Assemblymember Jim Cooper, uh, who is ironically the sheriff of Sacramento County now. The NFL has talked extensively about mm -hmm. CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. You know, a lot of these kids see what they see on TV and say, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to emulate that and I'm going to hit as hard as I can. When people see that as a danger and as a detriment to the game of football, are they fair in that assessment? Sure. I, I would say that there is some level of inherent risk in any sport, as I indicated, and certainly the conversation circles around at the NFL level. I think you mentioned about visibility and watching the games. But I, I believe what also gets missed in this translation is what happens on a football field on Sunday at the NFL level is not what happens at the youth football level on Saturdays. What's interesting to me in this conversation, because it always circles back to the NFL, and I understand about visibility. I'm an NFL fan for sure. But what's really interesting to me is that youth tackle football is the lowest energy environment of any level of play. So the Aspen Institute released a study, I want to say going back three years ago, where it said that 70% of youth stop playing any organized activity beyond the age of 13. So when we get into this conversation about CTE at this level of play or high school or collegiate or the NFL, I say to you that at the youth level, we believe it to be the safest level of play, the lowest energy environment. And a lot of those kids don't ever even go on to play beyond the age of 13. No one's denying the existence of CTE, but we can point to countless studies that show that CTE is found in folks who've never played a contact sport in their life. And so we do not see a correlation to the youth tackle football space. Causation is not necessarily correlation.
I want to go to something you said earlier about the lower levels of football being lower energy. And I want to talk a little bit about the teaching of football, because there are a lot of coaches who will see a young player tackle someone. And the first thing they say to him is you're doing it wrong because you're not hitting the right way. You're not turning your body the right way. How important at the lower levels of football, the the lower the youth leagues, the peewee leagues, is the teaching of football, the teaching of how to hit, how to block, how to tackle. How important is that? It's absolutely foundational at this level of play. And you can point to the California Youth Football Act that the education element of that particular piece of legislation is so critical in that we don't just roll coaches out now to teach kids. You must actually be trained, go through certification before you ever walk onto a youth tackle football field. What's what's really important to remember is that we're teaching from the ground level fundamentally the way you tackle, the way that you block. You have that foundation as you're moving up into the other levels. It is absolutely critical that those things are taught at this level. AB1 is now a roadmap to ensure that there are universal guidelines statewide, hopefully countrywide, at one point to do just that. That is what youth tackle football does. It prepares you for the next level. So when you're in a higher energy level environment, you are equipped with the knowledge and the technique that helps make you and the sport not safe, but safer. There's always inherent risk in any activity. For you and your supporters, the the whole football is not safe. Would you call it an overreaction? What would you what would you call that assessment from those who are on the side of of banning the sport or banning the youth level of the sport in California? We've talked about this internally with our team, with folks in the state. It feels that it's less about safety now. It's less about parental rights and the option to play and being able to choose. It really feels now that it's become more of the political will of a legislator. And the reason I say that is, Year after year, this spans back to 2018. We've attempted to engage with Assemblymember McCarty. He's had zero interest in doing that. If this bill, humbly from our position, was about safety and protecting uh, young athletes, he would have engaged with us, been supportive of AB1, and that has been quite the contrary. Let's talk about timeline, because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the California State Assembly has until the end of the month to decide how it will go on this? That is correct. So that that is a two-year bill, AB 734. The, the way that it's queued up is a two-year bill. The author has until the clock runs out in January for that to go to the floor. Um, we're hearing that on the assembly side that it may go to the floor as early as the end of this particular week. And if it clears that hurdle with a, a 41 vote minimum, then it would, in essence, move to the Senate side, start the process all over again as it relates to committee, get votes. And then eventually, if it was to make it that far, and we're we're really working hard to ensure that doesn't happen, then it would land at the feet of the governor. There is a huge opportunity for the governor, though, if it lands there to stand up for Californians. And I say that specifically for this reason. He proudly, without hesitation, stepped in and signed the California Youth Football Act into law in 2019. 
And at that time, he cited that it was sweeping and one-of-a-kind piece of legislation in the country, and it shows how progressive California is. That's how we see the governor's role in this process. Ron White is chairman of the board and president of the California Youth Football Alliance. Ron, thank you so much for joining us once again on the Fox News Rundown. Thank you as well. Appreciate the opportunity. other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. Do you remember those alien briefings in Mexico where the alleged mummified remains of tiny E.T. figures were presented to the public? Well, the results are in on what those little beings were, and it turns out they're not beings at all, extraterrestrial or otherwise. It turns out they're dolls assembled with paper, glue, metal, and human and animal bones, according to forensics experts. They say examinations showed the bones of birds, dogs, and other animals were used to create the figures. Conspiracies ran wild in September when ufologist Jose Mossan and Mexican lawmakers passionately told Congress the corpses were authentic. He claimed the bodies he dubbed Clara and Mauricio were between 700 and 1800 years old and found in 2017 in Cusco, Peru. Last month, he, along with other researchers, testified that 30 percent of the remains DNA was from an unknown species. Officials still don't know who owns the dolls, only stating that they were sent to a Mexican citizen before being seized by South American customs agents. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tammy Bruce, what's on your mind? The fallout from the December 5th congressional testimony about anti-Semitism on their campuses by three Ivy League University presidents continues. Americans watched as our supposed best and brightest turned into equivocating robots on the most important moral issue of our time, Jew hatred, the ancient envy-fueled hatred animating demonstrations on their campuses, supporting a terrorist group and the genocide of the Jewish people. No matter how cloaked, The obscenity of chanting a euphemism for genocide in the aftermath of the barbaric mass murder of Jews on October 7th made clear the intent to continue inflicting terror on Jews everywhere. But the smartest women in academia just couldn't figure that out. Wink, wink. Seeing this grotesque blight on humanity return less than 80 years since the exposure of the Holocaust can be overwhelming enough. But in addition to such inhumanity parading itself on campuses like Harvard, Columbia, NYU, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania, another significant event in American social and political history took place in front of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. The fraud and death of feminism and the indictment of its foundational ideology, identity politics. 
Gay, McGill, and Kornbluth, three women during a time of great existential concern, decided to parrot well-rehearsed lawyerly talking points about context when asked if calls for genocide violated their codes of conduct on bullying and harassment. And then there was Representative Elise Stefanik, the Republican from New York. Herself a Harvard graduate, it was her questioning of these three women that exposed their determination to not pass judgment on calls for genocide. The New York Times, in a story about the New York representative, offered this, quote, They had parried her grilling with lawyerly answers that, on their own, might not have made international headlines. But then they fell into something of a prosecutorial trap laid by Stefanik, refusing to answer yes when she asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated their university's codes of conduct on bullying and harassment, end quote. Asking university presidents if calls for genocide violated their codes of conduct is an easy question for the normal and decent. For those who are not, it's a trap. This abandonment of the most basic of moral understanding has now focused a much-needed spotlight on the bigotry embedded in the scourge of diversity, equity, and inclusion. As of this writing, McGill and Gay have resigned their positions. Reportedly, Gay resigned only because of the plagiarism scandal. Some suggest if shrugging at Jew hatred was her only problem, she'd still be ensconced in the presidential suite. Both women, however, remain at their universities as tenured professors. How is this possible? Because for the left, removing them completely would be the system cutting off its nose to spite its face. So the beat goes on and goes much deeper than the comrades the system puts in the big chairs. I'm Tammy Bruce, a contributor at Fox News, and this column originally appeared at foxnews.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.